Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I will be your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States. I'm flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 53. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry level through advanced aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On this episode of the podcast, we rejoin our guest from last week, Brian Utley, as he tells us the rest of his aviation story that includes getting serious about his favorite pastime as he goes soaring into the record books and breaking records that still stand today. Brian will also share with us how he became part of the National Aeronautical Association of Contest and Records Boards. Just one of the projects he shares with us while being on that board was becoming involved in a jump from the Edge of Space, sponsored by Red Bull. I'm sure a lot of you will remember hearing about that. All this and more now on Soaring the Sky. Brian Utley, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Hello, Chuck. My pleasure. This is part two. Um, for those that haven't, they can go back and listen to part one on the previous episode. All right. Thank you. Well, just to recap from part one, uh, we ended where I was returning to San Jose IBM Laboratories from Stockholm, where I had been on an assignment. This was in the spring of 1968. When I arrived back in San Jose, where I had a large development team, uh, I found that IBM had been making some decisions about a new laboratory, and they wanted me to move my uh, development operation to Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, obviously, this was a big move, but since I was already in motion, uh, it made it just a little bit easier. So I went to uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and uh, got familiar with the town. It's a university town, Florida Atlantic University, but it's also a retirement community with almost totally filled with retirement homes. So obviously, it was going to be a challenge to move my operation from San Jose which would involve more than 300 families, uh, to a place where there were no family homes. Because of that, uh, IBM rented a large condominium and also rented office space uh, where we started housing people and using the office space for the uh, engineers and staff as they arrived. At the same time, IBM contracted to have temporary buildings built on the property where the new laboratory was going to be. So a lot of time was spent getting familiar with the place, bringing people on board, and uh, getting operations in gear. I did find time to uh, look up Soaring and found that there was, in fact, a Soaring Club that operated from the Boca Raton Airport. Boca Raton Airport is actually a uh, World War II bomber training base. Most of it was taken over by the university, but there remained a 5,000-foot runway with a northeast-southwest orientation. It worked out very well for gliding because it had extremely low general aviation traffic. The airport itself was situated about two and a half miles inland from the ocean and about eight miles from a 
wildlife refugee called the Loxahatchee Grammy Refuge. The refuge is like Everglades, only on a much smaller scale. And it spanned west and north from uh, the point of eight miles from the airport. These are important uh, notions to understand about where the, uh, the airport was and what it was close to. In, uh, in the summer, when, the, uh, when, when we start to get thermals in the morning, what happens is the uh, thermals form uh, some two or three miles inland from the ocean. As they develop, they suck warm air for, uh, from the ocean, or cold air from the ocean, which must be warmed over the land. As the thermals get stronger, they move inland. As they move further inland, they're approaching the uh, wildlife refuge. What, what happens there is that the airport then is out of gliding range for the club gliders. The club had a 233 trainer and a 126. But from 2,000 feet, eight miles away, that's quite a stretch to get back to the airport safely. So we learned to operate while the, uh, the, the queues were close to the airport, but had to be very careful about how far away we would drift uh, in order to be able to have a safe return. So this was a learning lesson for me uh, about sea breezes. By late afternoon in the summer, we would get showers. Showers would develop over the refuge and they could be very strong. Sometimes we had very heavy thunderstorms. So it was obvious that if I wanted to do any gliding other than just simply fly around the airport, uh, I would need something a little stronger than uh, uh, the 126 or the 233. I did find among my engineers, an engineer who, who had flown gliders, who was a glider pilot, and we decided to uh, partner and ordered a Shemperth Open Cirrus. It was obviously a fiberglass glider, one of the early ones. We were told that it would be delivered the next year, 1969. So that gave us a little bit of time familiarizing ourselves with the uh, with the area, exploring what our cross-country options might look like. Uh, to the west, there was no choice. The Loxahatchee Refuge was a barrier. To the south, we have the uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport. We have Miami Airport, which pretty much block a uh, direct southerly track. And just to the west, of course, of uh, Miami and Fort Lauderdale are the Everglades. So uh, there seemed to be no reasonable uh, flight path for a glider to the south. Uh, there was another glider operation at Homestead Airport, which is uh, just past Tamiami, southwest of the uh, Miami airport, which was interesting, but it wasn't anything that was available that we could use. Looking north, uh, landing options were pretty sparse until you got past Jupiter Lake or the uh, east side of Lake Okeechobee, which would be on the west side of the course. So we started, once we got the, uh, the open cirrus, we became more adventurous and we did start to venture north. There were times in the morning, say early afternoon, when the queues would be sitting in a line just four or five miles inland from the ocean. And it looked possible that you could fly north, staying under the, the line of queues that uh, had formed inland, until you got to an area where you had more open and, and general soaring conditions. My partner did make a, a nice long flight. He flew from uh, Boca Raton 
up to uh, Jacksonville, uh, which was to be uh, a, a great, great, great flight. And late in 1970, uh, my partner, Ed, decided to return to California. So I bought him out, but I wanted something better. So in 1971, I ordered a, a Nimbus II. It arrived the next year, so it arrived early enough that I had a chance to fly it in the Regional 5 Regional, which occurred in uh, around Easter time. That was, uh, uh, that was a fortuitous situation because uh, I was able to fly there, and I came in first in, uh, in that contest. No, I came in third in that contest. Then later in the summer, there was another contest, Region 5 South, and there I uh, came in first. That gave me enough confidence that I thought oh, I can try a nationals. The next nationals was at, going to be at Liberal, Kansas. So uh, I decided to, that I wanted to go there, and I did. First day, I had a very nice flight. I came in fourth. Wow. But on the second day, I made a mistake. Uh, the, the flight out of Liberal was to, was to the southwest, to Dalhart, and return, a flight of 220 miles. On the way down there, it was just fine. I had no problem. On the way back, I ran into a squall line, a squall line that was running east and west, whereas the course line was uh, southwest, northeast. The lift under the squall line was violent. The rain was just coming down. It was making a lot of noise. Uh, I was uh, feeling very uncomfortable. I did run under the squall line for a while, uh, but I was worried about getting too far off the course line. And then I saw blue to the north in the clear. So I thought, oh, there, I have, I got to get back in the clear and get uh, and head towards the uh, liberal airport. Well, I got into the blue air, and guess what? <laughs> it became very still and smooth. Uh, I kept going and hoping to find a lift, but to no avail, and finally I had to land in the field. Everything was okay, and uh, the farmer was very helpful, but the field was very wet, obviously from the storm. Anyway, I continued on through the rest of the contest, and I ended up finishing in the 14th place. That, as it turns out, would be my lowest score ever in the Nationals. 1974 started out as another one of those IBM years. IBM wanted me to take over a major development program in Rochester, Minnesota. It was January, and the weather was, in Florida was very, very nice. As you can imagine, it was uh, with some reluctance that... Uh, I agreed to take off on another adventure. And I, I, parenthetically, I would say that I had once said that there were two places that I would not go for IBM, Rochester, Minnesota, and New York. Guess what? I ended up going to both. But uh, I was, uh, in spite of saying I would go, when I went in January, I was not prepared for the shock of below zero temperatures as I got out of the airplane at the airport. Because of the, uh, the weather, I decided not to make the move of the household from Boca until spring. Doing that meant that we had a chance to stop in at Chester, uh, South Carolina on the way. That's of course region, the region five regionals. It was worth a stop. I stopped there and flew and took first place. Rochester <clears throat> was in region seven. When I got there, I volunteered as the uh, SSA regional director, and I was selected. So now I had a new role with the SSA. Region 7 had a regional that year. It was to be held in Salem, Illinois. Uh, I felt there was nothing wrong with trying another regional, 
And that worked just fine because I took away another first place. Now it's time to go to the Nationals again. This time, the Nationals were at Adrian, Michigan. Very tough competition. Conditions were marginal. But I did manage to squeeze out the 10th place. 1975 was a busy year. Uh, the club I belonged to, uh, Minnesota Soaring Club, had sponsored a contest at Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. I went there, and I went four out of four days. We had four good days, and I won every single day. Uh, number second in the uh, contest was Joe Emmons from St. Louis. At the end of the last day, he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, uh, the weather conditions for tomorrow look pretty good. We have, we're in the back end of a front, a cold front, and we might be able to pick up a, a nice strong tailwind heading towards St. Louis. Why don't we fly to St. Louis and you can stay with me overnight? So uh, that's what we agreed to do. He and I both took off at about 10.30 Saturday morning heading towards St. Louis. Well, as it turns out, I made it to St. Louis, 435.1 miles. Uh, Joe landed about 100 uh, miles behind me. Boy, that what a day that was. I landed about uh, 6.30 at night in a school playing field, but it was safe. And uh, eventually we got together and spent the night with uh, he and his wife, Shirley. Next, it was time for the Nationals. The Nationals that year were at Hobbs. So we headed towards Hobbs, but, you know, we ran into rain, rain, rain on the way. The closer we got, the more rain we had. We thought maybe with a few days drying out, it might be okay. It might not be so bad. Ha! Ah, the closer we came to Hobbs, the harder the rain fell right along our, with our spirits. To top it off, our arrival at Hobbs was heralded by a tornado sighting. As Geraldine says, what you see is what you get. At the pilots' meeting of the first uh, day, the Hobbs mayor read his proclamation, and he said, uh, banning all rain dances and ordering the weather to knock off all the heavy clouds and rain, he must not have gotten the word from the right guru, because from that point on, things went semi-rotten, like to downright low-down, mean and ugly. Operations Director Don Yarbrough's comment that Hobbs got only half an inch of rain during the biblical flood of 40 days and 40 nights was just messing around with Mother Nature on a bad day, since she proceeded to rain over eight inches in the next week. In spite of the rain, we did end up flying. We flew for six days. But I, it was amazing to me to see six inches of water on the main runway at the uh, Hobbs Airport. I did, uh, over the six days, I did do well, and I came in fifth place. The uh, next year, 1976, we went back to uh, Chester again, Region 5. I liked Region. It was a lot of fun. It's a good crowd, good pilots, and uh, good terrain. So, and in the early spring, those good thermals, I always enjoyed flying there. And this time, I uh, managed to squeak out uh, third place. Also in 1976, same year, the 15-meter nationals were at Bryan, Ohio, and I had bought a PIC 20D, uh, so I decided to fly there as well. So uh, we packed up, went to Bryan, Ohio, and, and flew there. But on the, on the seventh day, I uh, was told that I had an IBM executive meeting in New York for the next morning. What to do? 
So <clears throat> I, uh, I found a plane, flew to uh, Detroit, got a plane to White Plains, New York, and had made the arrangements with uh, my executives that uh, I could get, I could use the corporate jet to fly back to Bryan. So I had my meeting, went back to uh, White Plains Airport and waited for the corporate jet to show up. But as it turns out, it was delayed by weather. So after waiting till afternoon, it finally showed up and uh, uh, I, uh, he took me to Brian. On the, I had a change of clothes on the airport, on the airplane with me. So I changed into my flying outfit. When we landed, I got off the plane. The car was waiting for me, got in the car. I was all dressed. I drove out to the, uh, to the flight line. My plane was put together. I was all ready to go. The tow plane was ready. Uh, I had the uh, task uh, instructions handed to me, and off I went. I was about two and a half hours behind the field. By the time I took off, everyone was making uh, the turn at the first turn point. I did uh, manage to uh, uh, get back to within three miles of the airport, but I couldn't squeeze the last three miles. So I ended up in ninth place, but I, but I made every day and... Uh, I was very happy to be able to do that. So I ended up, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't end up in uh, uh, ninth place. I ended up on the uh, in ninth on the day that I left to go to New York. I ended up at 14th again, uh, but I didn't drop below 14th. 1976 also had an open uh, nationals at El Mirage. And uh, so I said, I'm going to make that one too. And off I went to El Mirage, California. It was a nine-day contest, had great weather, and I ended up in fourth place. On the first day, the weather was somewhat unpredictable, and so the, uh, the task, uh, prescribed area distance task was called with a first turn at Gene, Nevada. I, uh, so I flew to Gene, flew to south of uh, Las Vegas, and then headed uh, west. Heading west, I came over the mountains and into, guess what, into Death Valley. I got down into Death Valley, and I had to land. I landed at Stovepipe Wells, which has an elevation of 10 feet. It's impossible to describe the feeling of, of what it is like to, to come down in Death Valley. As, the, as you're coming down, because Death Valley is a bowl, the temperature gets higher and higher and higher as you get lower and lower and lower. And when they call when they call the town stovepipe wells, it's exactly what it is. It's like you're in a stovepipe. Then I uh, went to uh, the fall board meeting since I was a member of the uh, SSA board. And at that meeting, I was appointed a vice president for 1977. 1977 uh, was a 15-meter uh, nationals at Hobbs. And I placed 12th with the with my pick 20D. I was not particularly ha happy with the 20D, so I had ordered a uh, an ASW 20. I had ordered it uh, through Carl Streetek, who was the dealer at that time. It came in uh, in 1978. It came in in the spring. He had also ordered an ASW 20. So he and I both went to Region 5. He came in first, and I came in second. Then I went to the 15-meter nationals in the freight of Washington, again with the uh, ASW-20. I was flying with uh, George Moffat. 
he came in first and I came in second. Uh, so that was, uh, I was very, very happy with the ASW-20. As a matter of fact, the AS-20 uh, was one of the nicest uh, planet gliders I have ever flown. It was just a very comfortable glider. The controls were well harmonized and the performance was very good, especially for its, uh, its vintage. There was a uh, board meeting of the SSA that fall, and uh, that fall I was uh, selected to be president of the SSA for 1979. Toward the end of the year, the FAA put out an NPRM for control airspace, and the, uh, the, the NPRM uh, proposed to lower the controlled airspace floor from 18,000 feet to 10,000 feet. We had our Chicago convention, uh, or that was the uh, SSA convention, in Chicago in February. And obviously at the board meeting, it was uh, a hot item on our agenda. So I had uh, invited Paul Poboresny, president of the uh, EAA, to attend this meeting with us. And also uh, invited Charles Spence, who was the vice president of AOPA, to join that meeting with us so that we could join forces and uh, uh, decide on what our action plan would be to uh, to deal with the proposed NPRM. We put an action plan together. We asked all of our members to uh, write to their uh, congressional representatives, to write to the uh, FAA, and to uh, uh, insist that uh, the, uh, the NPRM would destroy uh, general aviation and, and gliding for all practical purposes in the United States. As a result, there were 85,000 letters were sent to the FAA and to the Congress. Uh, because of that lobbying, the uh, Congress decided to hold a hearing, which they did in, uh, in March. March was also the deadline for the NPR, NPRM, but the, uh, the uh, uh, FAA did agree to extending the deadline to just after the 1st of April. We were invited to uh, present uh, our story to the to the hearing as well as as well as the ALPA, and so <clears throat> I uh, attended the uh, uh, hearing along with Forrest Blossom, who was uh, the SSA executive director, Carl Harold, Bernard Smith, Bill Holbrook, and Jim Haynes. I uh, read the uh, the response that we had prepared regarding the uh, the NPRM. And as a result of, uh, of all of that action, the NPRM was withdrawn and we all breathed a sigh of relief. Now, if you want to read about it, if you uh, go and look at the May 1979 Soaring magazine, you'll find a full page uh, story and photograph of that hearing. 1980 was Hobbs again, this time open class. And uh, I was there and I flew into ninth place. So. I was still doing reasonably good in the uh, uh, in, in the national championships. The fall board meeting uh, uh, that the SSA held, uh, uh, as usual, uh, discussed the uh, who was going to be president for 1981. I had been president for 1979 and 1980, and which was the normal length of uh, the presidency. But they decided to ask me to stay on another year, so I stayed on through 1981. Wouldn't you know it, 
1981, the gorilla rears its head again. IBM is moving, uh, wants me to move to headquarters to work on IBM product and technical strategies. Uh, so I agreed to move to, uh, uh, to New York. Again, I, I had once said I wouldn't go there, but I, uh, when I'm faced with the alternatives, I decided that was the right thing to do. Because I was moving outside of Region 7, I uh, had to resign as a regional director for Region 7, but I was still a director at large. Found a home in Connecticut and joined the Sugarbush Soaring Club. I had my uh, ASW 20, and uh, uh, guess what? I managed to set in 1982 the uh, state record for the 100-kilometer speed, 15 meters, at 78 miles an hour. Our conditions in Connecticut are very weak. 78 miles an hour was a, an unbelievable speed uh, for that uh, for, for Connecticut. That record still stands. I was looking at getting something back in the open class, so I sold my, my 20 and went to Germany to look at the new ships. I, I talked to uh, uh, Gerhard Weibel or Schleicher, and I talked to Klaus Holdinghaus. Uh, I, I knew I was familiar with both of these individuals. Uh, Klaus Holdinghaus, of course, was uh, uh, in the early production of the Nimbus 3. He agreed to get me a Nimbus 3 for, in early 1983 if I would make it available for Ingo Renner, who was the Australian Open Class champion, to fly in the national in the internationals at Hobbs that year. I agreed that I would let uh, Ingo Renner uh, fly uh, my ship, but I had one caveat. I wanted uh, disposable ballast in the tail, and Klaus thought that was a great idea since no one had ever done that. So my ship was going to be the first one to have disposable ballast in the tail. The, the chairman uh, had another another gorilla call. The chairman wanted me to be the general manager of an IBM medical equipment business unit, evaluate it, and recommend what, if any, changes I would propose. So this involves moving my family again to Princeton, New Jersey, which I did in the uh, early fall of uh, 1983, so children could get into school. In the meantime, Ingo Renner had uh, flown uh, my Nimbus 3 and was the new world champion. He won virtually every single day. He was a fantastic pilot. He had known Klaus Holighaus because Ingo was a German who had emigrated to Australia and was well known in Australia. Now back to this uh, being the general motors, uh, general manager of IBM Medical Equipment, uh, uh, the uh, the uh, business unit was involved in a, uh, a major activity. It was a research project with uh, New York Hospital and Cornell University Medical School, and it involved the uh, blood separation equipment that uh, my unit had uh, had developed. The research was. Uh, to determine if atherosclerosis, which is a, a thickening of the arteries, could be if it could be reversed by aggressive reduction of cholesterol. And sure enough, our research was showing excellent results. Uh, people would come in for testing, and we would run them them through a process, removing their blood 
passing it through a filter, separating out their cholesterol, and then reinfusing it back into the patient. People who could not walk upstairs coming into the uh, uh, testing area uh, had no trouble walking upstairs after they uh, went through a test. These were people who we call uh, hypercholesterolemics so with very, very elevated uh, cholesterol levels. Uh, because the uh, results that we were showing, uh, it turns out that the personal physician to the Russian president, Andropov, heard about our project. It's important to know that in Russia, heart attacks and heart disease is a terrible, terrible uh, uh, situation. They, the incidence of, of heart disease is extremely high, about two times what it is in the United States. This personal physician invited us to Moscow to discuss collaborative efforts because they felt, felt that they could take advantage of the, the work that we were doing. So we went to, uh, to Moscow and uh, had some very, very interesting discussions. And I have to say, it was an experience uh, that uh, my wife and I had never, ever, ever expected or had before. When we landed in Moscow, uh, we, it was for spouses as well. They were very courteous and, and, uh, and generous. When we landed in Moscow, we were met at the airport with uh, private limousines, put into the limousines that we had flashing lights all the way into Moscow. Uh, traffic was waved out of our way until we got to the our hotel, which was, by the way, it was a Hyatt. And we had uh, a whole week of meetings, uh, which proved to be extremely interesting. And we were uh, uh, hosted at a, a lot of events. It was a, just a wonderful experience, and including going through every corner of the Kremlin, which uh, uh, is, is most people never, ever, ever get to uh, to do. But nevertheless, after we came back and after several months, I went back to the chairman and I and I told the chairman that I thought that the unit, which I thought was very good, we had made great progress in improving the uh, the uh, the financials of the unit, but I felt that it should be sold off because it was a unit, it worked and it was in the medical industry. The medical industry and the IBM industry are very different, and and therefore it would never really fit well inside an IBM environment. So uh, I was asked, well, what should we do about the people? And I said, well, they could either, if we sold it off, the people could either stay with the unit or they could be reassigned to other IBM facilities. Uh, the corporate staff says, oh, just close up the, uh, the unit and reassign the people. I said, no. This is too important in the medical industry, especially with regards to this uh, research effort that we were uh, uh, working in. And so I was the chairman looked at me and said, well, you have my permission to see if you can find a buyer for the unit. Now, let me just add one thing about this, uh, uh, this research. The research was uh, used tools which work very well in the laboratory, but there were other ways people were researching other ways to reduce cholesterol. And within three years of this work, the first uh, statin drugs came into being. Uh, Levastatin was the first one. And, uh, and because the, uh, the 
statin drugs accomplish much of what we were trying to do mechanically. It, it really it proved the value of what we were doing, uh, but it meant what we were doing was no longer necessary. But now it's uh, time for another change. The company assigned me to London to introduce the PC to Europe and the Middle East. So off we go to London in time for the children to start school in the fall. My Nimbus 3 will go with us. And I joined the Lasham Gliding Group. Lasham is the biggest gliding center in uh, in England. It, it, it's in the south uh, west of, uh, of London, about uh, 60 miles. And uh, the great, great, great spot. Uh, my Nimbus 3, uh, was, uh, IBM agreed to, to send it shipping over there, which I was very happy for. And uh, so the next year, uh, in 85, I flew in the UK Open Class Nationals as a guest pilot. Flying in England, I have to tell you, is a little bit like flying in Florida, in southern Florida especially. The, the bases are always low, the lift is weak, and then not only that, but there's lots of traffic that, uh, that we have to worry about. But I, I was happy to be able to fly in the UK Nationals as a guest pilot. And uh, uh, was uh, I met a lot of, uh, of, of friends, made a lot of friends there. Now, after three years, my operation was transferred to Paris headquarters. Off we go again. After three years in London, we are now in Paris. So I find a French gliding club at Versailles. While I was there, I did not do any competitive flying, but I always enjoyed the uh, gliding clubs in Europe. They were always had social accommodations. They had sleeping accommodations. They had bars, food and drink. Uh, it's just a totally different environment from what we have in uh, most gliding clubs here in the United States. So that was uh, that made my stay there very enjoyable. Also, all of my flying was uh, was local flying. Uh, the summer of 88, uh, here, we, the gorilla wakes up again, and, uh, and it's time to go back to Boca Raton, uh, this time as the laboratory director. So I sold my Nimbus to a French pilot, uh, and uh, realizing that I would be without a sailplane. And when I, I got back to Boca, I uh, rejoined my, uh, my old club. My lab, as a laboratory director, I was responsible for the further development of the PC and was also responsible for PC-related development, development in Japan. When I had a chance, I consulted with my old friend Klaus Holdinghaus, and he strongly recommended the Ventus CM. That's the uh, motorized ver version of the Ventus with uh, uh, additional wingtips. He was forecasting a significant growth in motor gliders, and all the uh, glider factories in Europe were investing in motor gliders. So that's what I went with. And my vendors arrived in 93, and I joined the Motor Glider Association, which is formed by Pete Williams uh, of Nevada. He lived in Minden. I also rejoined the SSA board as a director at large. Uh, the first Motor Glider Nationals were held in Winter Haven, Florida in 1945. While not sanctioned, it was uh, fun and challenging given the Florida weather conditions. 
I would say, however, engine restarts were fairly common. Uh, Region 5 hosted a low-glider class along with other, cl- other classes at Cordell, Georgia. That was the southern uh, Region 5 contest site. And I came in third in that class. Then Minden hosted uh, the 1995 Motoglider Nationals, and I placed fifth in the uh, Minden uh, Nationals. Then in 1988, finished. Uh, I went to Hobbs and finished third. But in the meantime, the FAA had been in the uh, NPRM business again. The FAA had put out a uh, a modification to Part 61 requiring a medical for motor glider pilots. What to do? I had a Chicago meeting with the SSA Executive Committee. I called a meeting and with the uh, uh, motor glider uh, board to discuss this NPRM. The SSA at that time was not particularly interested in the NPRM because motor gliding was not looked on very favorably. They kind of looked down their noses at motor gliders. However, we uh, managed to make our point that making, if, if medicals were required for motor glider pilots, it was only a matter of time before it would be required for all glider pilots. So we made the sale to the uh, SSA Executive Committee. But the question was, well, how are we going to deal with it? And I, I made a proposal. I said, perhaps we should deal with motor gliders as a, just a glider with a different launch system. We have rope toes, we have auto toes, we have winch toes, we have tow planes, and we have self-launch, just different launching methods. I think if we proposed that the Part 61 be modified to make the uh, launch method, an instructor-approved uh, requirement, then I think that would perhaps solve the problem. So I drafted a response to the uh, to the FAA that the uh, SSA took to the FAA, and the FAA bought it. So since that time, since the F, since that uh, was approved, launch methods require instructor's approval. Before that time, they had never been uh, specified. The uh, launch method was never specified in a uh, in a solo or or licensing uh, approval process. In uh, 2003, uh, well, I would say that at this time I had decided to concentrate on setting state records, which I did set in Minnesota. Many of those records still stand. In 2003, uh, I joined the National Aeronautics. Association Contest and Records Board. This board specializes in observing general aviation world record attempts. And since that time, I'm still a member, a very active member on that board. I've observed well over 100 record attempts, specializing in precision GPS tools. One of these is perhaps the most famous one, and and it's hard to find someone who has not heard of it, was the, was the jump from the edge of space by Felix Baumgartner as a parachutist. I was asked to join the project. It was a very lengthy project ran, uh, for three and a half years in order to prepare for this jump. It involved building a capsule, a balloon launching system. 
it involved the uh, verification process, which was the part that I was interested in. It, was, it involved the verification process for determining how high, how fast the, uh, the jumper would fall and how long the jumper would fall. The operation would be housed at Roswell, New Mexico, and would be sponsored by Red Bull. There were three jumps that Felix made before making the final jump. Well, the third was the final jump, each one getting higher and higher. The final jump was in 2012, was from 127,852 feet. The velocity that he achieved, the terminal velocity, uh, was 844 miles an hour, well, well above the speed of sound. We didn't know until that time what would happen when he broke the sound barrier. But as it turns out, he didn't feel a thing. People on the ground heard the, uh, uh, did hear the, the thunderclap from the uh, uh, breaking the sound barrier, but he did not feel a thing. Wow. In, uh, so in uh, 2011, I received from the FAI the Paul Tusandia Award. In 2011, also, I was inducted into the Minnesota Aviation Hall of Fame. And in 2012, I uh, received the NAA Certificate of Honor. And in uh, 2018, two years ago, I was inducted into the SSA Hall of Fame. So soaring has been a very, very big part of my life. It's been an interesting process, interweaving the uh, uh, the soaring and the, my business life, which of course was very intensive and uh, and very important. Also, I think that uh, what I did was very important to the SSA. We need a strong SSA. The, the SSA needs to be able to defend the interests of the soaring community in the world of aviation. And anything that we can do to support the SSA is, uh, is, is, is a good thing to do. So with that, I'm passing uh, this on to the next generation. I now mentor uh, students and young people who want to fly cross country. And I enjoy working with new pilots and cross, uh, uh, new cross country pilots tremendously. So good luck and all the best. Brian, thank you so much for sharing this amazing story. We greatly appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. And thank you for all that you've done for the soaring community and you continue to do. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the podcast. Wow, what an amazing story Brian has shared with us. I am thankful for all the contributions he has made to the soaring world that helped us be able to continue to fly sailplanes today. I'm also thankful for each and every one of you who continue to come back each week and support the podcast by listening and telling your friends about us. 2020 has already been a super exciting year for the podcast. We took the podcast on the road a little last year, and this year we plan to take some more road trips, so stay tuned for more info on where we will be. Also, some other exciting stuff coming up for the podcast. Have a great week and fly safe. Michelle has some info for you now on how you can interact with us and how you could be our next guest right here on Soaring the Sky. You can find us on social media. On Facebook, it's Soaring the Sky Podcast. On Instagram, it's the same, Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck 
at SoaringTheSky.com or you can send us a note on the website, SoaringTheSky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.